Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Valley Baptist Church. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 9. We've been working through the Gospel of Luke. It's, um, well, we're about eight months in progress here, and we're eight chapters into it. Um, and as you're turning to Luke chapter 9, verse 57, uh, just a couple announcements. First, on Deborah, you, you know, she, I got an email probably, I don't know, a month ago or so, and it was, uh, Pastor Gunner, uh, could Alternatives Women's Center use a ultrasound machine? And I kind of replied and was like, sure, I think so. Did you like um, find one at a garage sale or like, you know, they're like a medical clinic. Like what's, can, can you give me a little bit more here? And she said, no, I've just been reading this book, Do Hard Things, aimed at teenagers. And she's like, I really want to help the pregnancy clinic. I'm like, well, that's great. I mean, I'm all for you. And you think really big. And just so you know, like... Um, an ultrasound machine runs like 35 grand. And, and she like then came back and was like, well, I guess they need money. So how about we just do a rummage sale and whatever we can raise, we can give to them. And I was like, I'm blown away. And I like had, I'm on the board of directors for alternative women's center. And it was like two days later or a week later, I was at a board meeting. I'm like, guys, just pray for this little girl. Like I'm just touched that this 14 year old would want to do this with this big of faith. And the director of the clinic said, tell her that her prayers have been answered. Somebody just donated 35 grand for us to like buy a machine. And, and so, but there's like to run them and to keep them going. It's a free medical clinic for those who are experiencing pregnancy, crisis pregnancies or recovering from having an abortion. And so it's just a great ministry. So whatever we raise, we're going and designating it towards the ultrasound uh, machine. Um, That's that. Um, today afterwards, it's, it's, you know, our, our monthly softball. We tried it out once and we just have so much fun. Pat, are you, is it a green light for you? Or are you at the end of the last softball game? Everybody's kind of lingering around. And as the pastor, I kind of like to, you know, be the last one to kind of go. And Bob comes up to me and he's, he kind of whispers, he's like, he's like, brother, you need to leave. She's like waiting for you to leave. I'm like, wait, you're kicking me out of, he's like, listen, she's going to take batting practice. After everybody leaves. And so Pat's been dialing her bad. And so she's she's coming to the plate today. And uh, it's a lot of fun. And, and we're sore. I'm going to do better. Last week, last month, I had bruised ribs. And, and so it's going to be a great time. And this coming Friday, um, Friday night, 7 o'clock is when we're going to kind of start things. But, you know, popcorn has to finish popping. And people have to get settled. So probably like 7.20-ish is when we'll start the movie. Um, but Soul Surfer is a... Movie that was produced by Hollywood. It's a true story based on Bethy Hamill, who was a young girl, 13-year-old, I think, uh, an upcoming professional surfer. And she was surfing one day with um, some friends, and a shark basically attacked her, and she lost her left arm. And she is a solid Christian, and this is the journey of her faith kind of going through that and how God... um, gave her the faith and strength and, and through her struggles of continuing her journey, she's still a pro surfer today with one arm. And um, the family, when Hollywood did this, I mean, there are major actors in this movie. And the family said, we are not releasing the rights to you. We will be here every step of the way. And so there, it, there is, it's a very Christian movie. I was blown away when I saw it. There is the shark attack scene, which is a little, I mean, that's a little traumatic. But other than that, it's like a movie that will like bring you to tears of the faith of this girl and, and uh, encourage you. She was at Harvest Crusade. It's a powerful girl. Yeah. So awesome. So I'm going to pray. And in today's text, if you're visiting, I'm sorry, this text is hard. It's, uh, you know, it keeps me up at night. Luke chapter 9 has been like tearing me apart. And so... You know, Jesus is probably going to challenge you today, and I'm challenged. This message is at me. It's just I'm not here preaching down on everybody. I'm here taking a beating from this text. Um, so I'm going to pray, and I'm going to give a little bit longer of an introduction before I even read the text. Um, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. Lord, we thank you um, for the love of Christ that's been poured out upon us, Lord. We pray um, that as we come to study your word, Father, that your spirit would illuminate the meaning of the text. Lord, that you would soften our hearts, Lord. Um, Lord, I just pray that the principles, Lord, of this text, I know that they've penetrated deep into my heart and have convicted me. 
And um, Lord, I pray that you would give us a spirit of humility before you. Um, Lord, that we would hear your voice. That you would show us, Lord, where we need to, what we need to do in our own life. And Lord, that we would respond to you. Uh, we do love you, Lord. Um, we come before you and, Lord, you're my only hope, Lord. And uh, I just thank you, Lord, for this day. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen. So this chapter, all of chapter 9, the, the, the very last few verses are some of my very favorite verses in the Gospel of Luke, maybe in the Gospels. Simultaneously, they're the most difficult verses. The, the thing is that I don't, it's, that I don't under, it's not that I don't understand what they're saying, it's that I don't like what they're saying because it, like, it hits home with me. And the reason I like these verses so much is I really need to have them like tattooed to my forehead so I would see and backwards. So every morning in the mirror, I would see them to remind myself, this is what you need to hear, Gunner, because you're so prone to stray. I kind of laughed yesterday. I speak once a month to a bunch of first responders, cops, paramedics, firefighters, that sort of thing. And I said, hey, guys, I need, I'm using you as guinea pigs because I'm having a hard time preparing and delivering this message. So I'm going to run this by you. We're going to brainstorm. But as I'm talking to them, I kind of laughed. I'm like, you know, the problem with reading the words of Jesus in the New Testament is Jesus kind of challenges everything that I understand Christianity to be as an American. And Jesus shouldn't challenge our understanding of Christianity. He sets the bar for what Christianity is. And this goes against American Christianity, or really American Christianity has always been there. Um, Burger King says it best. What do they say? You can do it your own way. And we come to God and we want to tell him how to do business. And God says, I'm not Burger King. I'm God. You're the created one. I set the bar. You come to me and I'll guide you. There's a saying in the SEAL teams. That we kind of joke amongst each other, you know, and normally the joke comes when it's you've been up for four days. It's hailing on you. You're freezing cold because you're soaking wet. You're just absolutely starving. And we'll look at each other and we'll say, everybody wants to be a frogman on a sunny day. Because those days that you see, like in the Navy recruiting picture of the guy in the really short shorts on the beach on the sun getting a tan. Everybody wants to be a SEAL on those days. But when helicopters are being shot out of the sky and you're losing friends and you're miserable, nobody wants to be a team guy in those circumstances. And that's like the reality of it. And so here, Jesus, we're going to be introduced to these three people. Two of them are going to boldly tell Jesus, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. And Jesus is going to look at one of them and say, follow me. And their response or how Jesus responds to them, it doesn't necessarily coincide with, as, a, as an American Christian and now pastor, how I think that we would respond. Jesus is like whittling down the crowd that he wants people that understand the cost of what they're signing up for. And he'll take a smaller number over a big crowd of people that are following him with compartmentalized lives. It's, it's hor like this has been horrible for me going through this text this week because I see all of my weaknesses and all of my flesh being challenged here. And John MacArthur suggests there are three principles um, or three illustrations of things that often hold men or women back from following Jesus. In the first story, he suggests that personal comfort often keeps people from following Jesus. The second story is that desire for personal wealth or riches will hold people back from following Jesus. And the final thing is that personal relationships will often hold us back from following Jesus. So I'm going to pray and then we'll read the text and then we'll dive into it and go through it verse by verse. Um, Father, I do thank you for your Bible and your word that you've given to us. Lord, I thank you that this is a body where we... Um, value going through kind of line by line, book at a time, allowing you to speak to us in your own terms, in your own precepts, and that we come before you humbly. And Lord, this text is challenging to me. And, and I just, um, I pray, Lord, that you would allow me to surrender to you and to really to respond to the message found here. We ask you for help. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, 
I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord. But first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. So the first guy we're introduced to in verse 57 looks really good to me. Like he walks up to Jesus and says, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. I'll follow you. Man, that, awesome, bro. As an American Christian, because that's just kind of what I am, you know, like I've noticed, like we pray for people and somebody can give like even the like the most tiny sliver remote inclination of like that they're open to the things of god and it's like oh praise the lord come on in it could be as simple as i've caught myself as oh there's a person who's a total atheist and they want nothing and i said well can i pray for you and they're like oh yeah pray for me that's great it's like oh they're jumped on board come on oh yeah i feel good about them and jesus this guy like comes saying i'll follow you wherever you go i'll go and jesus doesn't like say attaboy hop on the hop on the gravy train join us we're going to we're going down to Jerusalem. It's going to be a good time. It's the annual festival. See, this turning point in chapter 9, Jesus has been doing his two years of ministry in the Galilee region. And now he's starting to say, no, this time when we go to Passover, I'm going to be taken into the, the hands of the leaders. They're going to kill me. I'm going to die. I'm going to raise from the dead. And they weren't really following all of this. And if we go to Matthew, we learn a little bit more about this man. Matthew tells us that this man is a scribe. So in the Jewish people, the scribe was one of the most respected teachers of the Bible. They understood it. They set the law for how to, how to prescribe the scriptures into your life. And he also comes to Jesus and he, he refers to Jesus as teacher, kind of submitting himself to Christ. And in all of that, Jesus' response doesn't make sense. Because what does Jesus say to him? He says, first, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He says, listen, you look at animals, the foxes, every night they have a place they can go home to and sleep. The birds even of the air, every night they have a place to go to sleep. But I'm homeless. I don't even, like, night to night, I, like, who, who knows where I'm going to stay. And many have suggested that the, the heart issue of this man that approaches Jesus is he witnessed Jesus feeding the 5,000 men with five pieces of pita bread and two sardines, uh, upwards when you count women and children, upwards of 20,000 people, people have speculated. And this guy thinks, well, if I come follow Jesus, he's the Messiah, he's going to reign and rule, he's going to provide all of this stuff for me, and then my life will be really comfortable. And Jesus says, well, if you're following after me, realize that even I don't have a place to go to sleep at night. And it makes me wonder about the prosperity God. Like when I see these guys on TV. that say, just give your money just by faith, give your money to this ministry, give it to God. And when you do that, he's going to restore all of your family relationships He's going to bless you beyond belief. That bread is going to be shaken up, stirred around, scattered across the land, meaning that you're going to get rich. The problem is, is with most of these guys is that the picture of Jesus that we see in the Bible, he, 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 wouldn't have, he couldn't fit into the picture that they're painting. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus can't bless and can't because he, he absolutely does. He gives and he takes. But the issue is that this guy's coming to Jesus for the blessing, not acknowledging him as Lord. When I learned how to skydive, it was horrifying to say the least. There's absolutely no reason to jump out of a perfectly good plane. 
I mean, I'm all for adrenaline, but it's just like you kind of take it too far. Like I'll never forget Joffrey here, a friend of mine's visiting, and Dave's right there. Somebody treated Joffrey and Dave to go skydiving. I opted to go to the wind tunnel because I could get more time there. And I kind of remember when they came down. I, I, I think Joffrey was game for doing it again. Dave, I think you're done, right? Or are you game? The, the guy who treated Dave was like, I'm done. Never again will that happen. And the first time I jumped out of the plane, the deal was I had one week to learn how to pack a parachute. And then, so on Monday, Monday through Friday, I p- learned how to pack a parachute. And then on Monday, I had to jump out of a plane with a parachute that I packed. Talk about being a little like, I didn't get much sleep that night. And see, with a the parachute, there's a guy, an evangelist, who uses a parachute as an illustration to show the problem of the church in America today. He says, people, oh, come to Jesus. Jesus will, like, solve all your problems. Everything will go better. And then people trust in Jesus. And then their family will kind of turn on them. Like, how could, what? You did what? Wait, you can't, like, party with it? You're not wanting to party with it? You're getting convicted? What is this all about? You, you're changing, and it can be hard with relationships. Like, I know people that have said, no, I've got to leave my profession because my line of work is not honoring to God. And so they actually become, they find themselves in financial hardship. And then people go, well, I was promised that if I trusted in Jesus, all of this stuff would go well. And now that I trust him, everything's just getting worse. So I'm not going to wear Jesus. I'm not going to put him on anymore. And so if somebody told me that learning to pack a parachute and they were trying to sell me that wearing a parachute is the best, most comfortable way to fly in a plane. As soon as I got in the plane after like, I mean, really, in all honesty, from the time that you put the parachute on that walk to the plane, I would already be kind of because it's painful. And then sitting in the plane, it's like you're kind of hunched over. It hurts your back. It hurts your armpits. It hurts your crotch. Everything hurts. This is supposed to make it comfortable. I would last about 15 minutes before I start popping off the straps. But see, now it's totally different when I go to free fall school and they say, hey, pay attention how you pack your parachute because one week from today, you're using the parachute that you packed to jump out of the plane. And so I'm like going through everything meticulously. And the instructor's like, now when you do the front of it, you can either roll it in to, for a softer opening. I'm like, well, what's a softer opening mean? Like, well, that means that as the chute's opening, it takes a little bit longer to open it before it gets the air caught in it. I'm like, no, teach me how like when it opens that my boots fly off. Like, I want to know that thing is there. I don't care if I pass out. I just want to know that I'm good to go because I don't want to practice the whole just I don't want to know anything about cutaways. I just want to know about one good parachute. And I've never had to cut away. (laughs) I've never had to go through that. And so then I go in there and I strap down my chest strap. I strap down my leg strap and I waddle to the plane in agony because my greatest fear was I going to pack a perfect parachute. As soon as it opens, I'm going to slip through it. And so I don't put on a parachute for the sake of comfort. I, well, in some respects, it's comfort, you know, hitting the ground. You want to be comfortable when you hit the ground. But I don't wear it for comfortable life. It's to stop me from that impact. And so why do we come to Christ? Well, we don't come to Christ for money, for wealth, for improving our relationships, which he may do all of those things. We come to him because he's Lord, because we have sin. Our sin separates us from God. God is holy. If we're going to have a relationship with God and God loves us so much that he wants a relationship with us, Jesus came being God in eternity, eternity forever. There is no clock. It's outside of time. Came to this earth, lived the perfect life, perfect life, went to the cross. All of the world's sin was placed upon him so that we could have a relationship with him. That's why we come to him. And so then the second guy, so this guy comes up, I'll follow you wherever you go. And we don't know how he responded. But Jesus says, oh, you want to follow me? That's great. Do you realize that the birds of the air have a nest and the foxes have dens to sleep in? I don't even know where I'm sleeping tonight. I, I, I kind of stay wherever I crash at people's places. Just camp out. And this scribe was respected by all. Did he say, oh, okay, I'm going to go on my own way now. I don't know. It certainly does not paint the picture that this guy followed after him. 
And I picture this crowd, and then Jesus looks to somebody else, and he says, you follow me. And this one is the, this, this guy has been troubling me all week. Jesus says, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. See, this doesn't fit my picture of Jesus. Like from what I see that, okay, God loves family and he wants us to love our parents. And the guy says, my dad's dead. Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. Follow me. Proclaim the kingdom. And so like as I research this, sometimes when I start studying and reading as many commentaries, it just creates more confusion because people are all over the place. Like most people, most commentators hold one position that says it wasn't that this guy was actually dead. He, he might not even have been close to dying. He could have been like 40 years of life left in him. But for this son to follow Jesus meant that he would have to walk away from his father. And his dad might cut him out of the inheritance, might not let him continue in the family trade. And so this guy's like saying, well, let me wait till my dad dies. Wait till, you know, the inheritance is settled out. Then I'll follow you. That's one option. The second option, who very few people hold to, but Alistair Begg, if you listen to the radio, he's the preacher that sounds like a leprechaun. He's from Scotland. I love him. I really like him. And I, like I, like he won me over for a little bit. Like each guy kind of wins you over and that's like a ping pong match going on in your head. Like, hey, he's like, I don't see this in the text. He's like, I think everybody says that about the inheritance because that softens what Jesus says. He's like, I think this guy's dad was dead. And Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. Follow me. Ouch. Brutal. Like, that doesn't seem like the Jesus that I, like the picture we see, you know, the loving guy wearing a tie-dyed shirt, long hair, saying, oh, love, brother, just love one another. And the third option that has been suggested by very few is that Jesus is speaking in spiritual terms. Like, let the spiritually dead, like, let those that are dying burying, bury those who are dying. I can kind of see something from each one. I'm going to focus on two. The, the dead dad option or the, the inheritance option. I don't know which one was going on here, but I think that there are valuable points from each one. Let's go with the dead dad option. Today is August 14th. In three days, it'll be August 17th. That's how the calendar works, class, just so you know, just uh, easing into it. On August 17th is a significant anniversary. Um, one, the less significant one, it was a big one, but it got trumped. See, August 17th marks the four-year anniversary of us moving to Valley Center. But more importantly, it marks the two-year anniversary of Anna's grandmother passing away. It was a horrible day. Horrible day. And to put it even to, to greater perspective, our youngest daughter, Elizabeth, was born on August 24th. That is exactly one week from the death of Grandma. And as she was kind of not doing well for a couple of years. And then it was a Monday morning. And that Monday morning, we kind of talking to Anna's dad. It was like, oh, wait a minute. Like, things seem to be turning significantly. And I remember going to Anna, going, Anna, like, if we got to go, we got to go. Like, we'll go now. Like, I don't want you to regret for the rest of your life not being able to say goodbye to your grandma. Like, we can cancel whatever we have going. So I call Barb, and Barb's like, hey, I'll take care of the dogs. Don't worry about it. We take off, we get basically to the 91, not even halfway, and the call came in that her grandmother had died. Horrible. Horrible. I got a wife that's like over nine months, this whole nine-month thing, it's like 10 months, you know? Like she's, she's past the expiration date. And my dad had just given us a car that came with OnStar, and like in this, like my weird mind, I'm afraid that I'm going to become like the latest OnStar commercial I've got a wife. She's having a baby. I don't know where I am. Where's the hospital? Can you navigate me in? Like this was a very real fear of mine. So we got up there and we were grieving. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday came. The funeral was on Thursday. I remember John had asked me, Gunnar, I don't know if I can do 
the funeral for my mom. Are you willing to like at least bring backup? And I'm like, of course. But then the whole contractions thing started like happening. And like five minutes apart, we're in central California, her place where she's having the babies downtown San Diego. And I, I we're like, and Anna's like, and Anna's mom's like, you can't stay. We know that you want to be here for the funeral, but you cannot stay. And that was the fastest drive I ever did. Like, I think I stopped for like the, like it was like NASCAR pit stop for gas, not wanting to call OnStar. And it came close. Like, I mean, it was, but then the baby, like because of the stress, everything, she came like a week later. But in this, there was like no choice. It's like, well, your grandma's dead. She knows that you love her. She knows that you're here. The funeral is for us. And going with the dead option with this man, if the guy is dead and if he truly wanted to bury his father, would I see Jesus, if we back the picture up, here's a man that Jesus says, follow me. He is months from going to Jerusalem to have the greatest event in human history. I don't care if you don't believe in Jesus or you trust in Jesus. Wherever you are on the spiritual spectrum, nobody can deny that Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, his life was the most significant event in all of human history. Like everybody around the world knows who Jesus is for the most part. And Jesus looks at this man and says, let the dead bury the dead. What's happening here is historic. I'm going down and he is the gospel. He is going to die according to the scriptures for the payment of our sins, that he was going to be buried, that he was going to raised again. And this man had the opportunity to participate. Huge. Or the option that his dad is not dead. And it's an inheritance. Oh, boy, I totally relate to this one. This one was a huge struggle for me. My dad's a retired financial advisor. I was in the Navy for 12 years. At the 12-year mark, I felt like God was calling me out of the Navy to go to the ministry. Well, everybody pretty much knows that at 20 years in the military, there's a pretty significant retirement plan. Like your whole insurance for everybody's covered for your whole life. At 38 years old, I'm 36, about to turn 37 right now. Like I'm one year shy of my what would have been my retirement. Like pay, like your paycheck is totally not even connected to the work you do. It's like you get paid every 15 days whether you deserve it or not. Like it just happens. It's not, it doesn't. And so then I go to my dad and I say, Dad, I'm damn going to the ministry. And he was supportive, but he's also like, Gunnar, do you realize how short, how insignificant eight years is in the grand scheme of your life? And he wasn't necessarily like discouraging me. He's like, there's a greater bot. Like he totally was supportive, but he also was like, well, count the cost. Realize what you're suggesting. And there were plenty of Christians that were like, Gunnar, maybe you should like, Maybe you should do the reserves, do the reserves, because then you could still, you know, just be a weekend warrior, go once a once a month, you know, and and or then there was the idea of, well, maybe I'm not got all the credentialing. Maybe I'll just go be a chaplain for the Air Force. No, I wouldn't stick because the Navy, they'd stick me with the Marine Corps. And I, who wants that? That's that's semi Marine back there. Um, but that's what I felt. So I thought, oh, the Air Force is like the perfect, perfect place to go. And I'm praying. This is like over five years that I'm like wrestling. It was like, because I knew that my time was getting up and I'm wrestling through all this. And I finally reached the point where I felt like God used this verse and he said, okay, give me your like the pros and cons list of why you're staying out. Like this wasn't like an audible voice. This is just like, you know. And I felt like God told me, well, it sounds like the only reason that you want to stay in the military at all is because you don't trust me for resources. I was like, (laughs) nailed it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> bingo <laughs> we have a winner can we <laughs> please somebody give god a prize <laughs> i'm like this is kind of how i eat this is how i survive this is like i was in the navy 15 days after high school graduation i don't know what it's like to earn a paycheck never worked a day in my life i was just a navy seal and i was having fun 
And like the money was not connected to work. It's not like there's a time card or you're doing. It just happens right in your bank account. And this verse is like, no, Lord, I really I want to follow you. And I'm and so today I stand here six years out. Not in the reserves. Not active duty. And God's been totally faithful, like total, like way more faithful than I thought he would be to me. And I love that what Jesus says here to this guy, he says, you, as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Your dad's dead or your inheritance is like down the road, like who knows what happens. But I want you to proclaim the kingdom of God now. And I can't tell you how many people I've ran across that say, you know what? I, I'm not going to really walk with God. Like, right, well, they don't really, they never say I'm not going to walk, not walk with God right now. What they say is this big, oh, I'm going to do X. Few fill in the blank. But the X ultimately results in them becoming like a multimillionaire so they can give like a gazillion dollars to God. That when this happens, I'm going to, I'll buy a sanctuary for your church. Cross my heart. I want to make tons of money. I want to finish school now. I want to do this so that then I will follow after you. And these promises of money for God and stuff like this, it's like, well, do you give now? Like, do you, like, is it in your practice to, like, give? Oh, no, that's like, so yeah, you don't give now. You're not going to, like, getting more money? Like, the more money you make and giving more, it only gets harder writing checks. And it cracks me up, people who criticize Rick Warren, like his plan, like Rick Warren wrote the book, The Purpose Driven Life, made all kinds of money. This guy will look at you like I've talked to him and he says, you know, I made a promise to God that one day I wanted to reverse tithe. And he's like, when you have a New York Times bestseller for multiple years, he's like, do you know how much money that brings in? He didn't give us a number. I'm sure it's out there. I don't remember the number. And he's like, every month when I, I cut 90% of what I make, and people say, oh, well, it's like, he still makes a million dollars a year. That's a ton of money. But giving away like $99 million and keeping one is like, that is not easy to do. I don't know that I could do that, but I haven't made that vow with God. I'm having a hard enough time with my simple 10%. I'm just keeping it honest. <laughs> But God doesn't want these promises in the future that we may or may not be able to cash. He wants us today to seek after him. Don't worry about riches and wealth. He'll provide. There's a saying that Jesus is Lord over all or he's not Lord at all. Like he's Lord. He can provide. Then we see the last guy. So I don't, I don't. Guys are kind of competitive. You know, the first guy, like, says, oh, I'll follow you. Wherever you go, I'll go. Jesus says, hey, wherever you go, there's, like, you know, foxes have places to stay. Birds of the air have nests. I don't have anywhere to sleep. Jesus looks at the next guy. Lord, I'll follow you. Oh, but, Lord, let me go bury my dad. Then he gives this response. He's like, uh-oh. Then the other guy. But, Lord, 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 I'll go. Another said to him, verse 61, I will follow you, Lord, but first... Permit me to say goodbye to those at home. This is a personal relationships. Let me go say goodbye. I can't tell you how many people have made great promises to God. Then they go back to their girlfriend, their boyfriend, their mom, their dad, their cousins. And suddenly that zeal of what they kind of promised to God, I'll follow you, kind of gets like, yeah. If I do this, then I'm like my relate, my family relationships are going to get kind of difficult. Or how people, I kind of joke like last time, because a lot of times, like, very rarely do I feel moved during worship to, like, raise my hand. But when I do, it's because I feel really convicted, like, and it's not like, oh, Abba, Father, like, let me come to my dad. It's like a gun, like a cop holding a gun at me, and I'm like, surrender, I give up, I'll do whatever you want, God. But even in these moments, I kind of joked, but it dawned on me, I said it jokingly, like, a lot of times, I'll only, like, raise my hand like this. Because as I get caught in that moment, I think, oh, wait a minute. What if people see that I have tattoos? And that's me more concerned about people, my valuing what people think about me than what I think God thinks about my heart. 
people don't care about my tattoos, but for some reason in my head, because of what it represents in my mind of where I came from, like I'm not bashing anybody with tattoos, I'm bashing myself, like this is me. And so like I resist like lifting my arms because it's like, oh, what if they see that? And then there are these moments where it's like, Lord, I don't care. Like I only care about you. If they see my, like, forget, who cares what they think? I only care what you think. And Jesus looks at this guy that says, he just wants to go back and say goodbye. Like, there's another excuse. Like, I'm going to follow you. Hold the train. I'm going to go back. I'm going to say goodbye. I'm going to be right back, and then we can go. And Jesus looks at this person in verse 62, and Jesus says to, said to him, No one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. I've done much, much plowing. Like now I think like the farmers, like they have GPS on their big old John Deere's with the AC. When I drive to central California, I think they just kind of push the button and they go. But in the old days, I'm going to draw from my farming experience, which is little house on the prairie. This is where <laughs> they have like those things, the plow with the reins going over their neck and around and they got to like focus. And Jesus is saying, you can't like just put one hand on the plow and like look back you're going to get rows that are all over the place. And a little thought. See, most people hear this verse. If they know it, they think, oh, Jesus said that. What's fascinating is this was a well-known saying of their time. Jesus is quoting a Greek philosopher from the 8th century B.C., like a non-Jewish, like a pagan sort of guy. And Jesus knows the culture. And he's like quoting from their culture something, a truism which fascinates me, but that's like a tangent. Like that you can use our culture around us and the things that people are engaged in in our culture that are not believers, that we can pull illustrations from that to paint spiritual truths. And when I look at this, this guy, I will follow you and relationships that hinder. And I think what Jesus is doing is he's trying to show us like where our hearts are wrong with them. Like most people know, okay, Martin Luther, famous in the Catholic Church, pounding his 95 thesis into the door. His point number one, none of us really know it. I don't know it, but I have it right here, so I do know it. He wrote, when our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of penitence. That, hey, when he calls you to repentance, he doesn't want you to just, like, segregate your life. Like, I've been thinking this week, there are all kind of, like, clubs and places that having partial commitment is totally okay with. Like Kiwanis. Like, I struggle with going to I, I really like the people. Problem is, it's like on a Friday morning at 7 a.m. And I'm just not there yet where 7 a.m. is, like, a comfortable time for me. I mean, I could be in my house, but like, you know, and then I'm like a pastor. So I feel like I got to get like pastor attire. Like I can't just roll. Like there's a lot of stuff. We, we don't need to go into my brain totally for you guys. But I make it like 10 times a year. I make it to Kiwanis or I go through streaks where I'll make it for three months and I'll take nine months off. And they're totally cool with that. There, I don't know. There's all kinds of things that I can kind of join and give part of myself to. But Jesus, when he says, follow me, or we say, follow him, he wants all. It's like that him. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Now, by no means am I saying that you've got to earn your salvation. Salvation is a total gift. We cannot earn it. There is no way for us to earn it. Jesus came. He loves us so much. He died on the cross. He's offering salvation as a free gift to us. In two weeks, I'm doing a wedding for George and Evie's grandson. They came over to our house last night, the grandchildren. This is going to be a rough ceremony for me. For those of you that know George and Evie, he was the pastor of this church like in the 60s. One of the godliest men I know. Been married like 65 years. Sweetest guy I know, but he's like a brother to me. And I told him, I'm like, guys, as I kind of going over the order of their wedding ceremony, I'm like, guys, I got to give you a disclaimer. I'm going to be crying like a baby. Like there's like, I'm just letting you like, you, you know, like, I'm volunteering my time, like, this is, but I'm going to be crying because of what you guys, like, represent to me is this godly man and his wife and what they've sacrificed for the Lord to see their grandchildren now making this union who both love the Lord. I'm going to be a mess. 
But then I started thinking about this text and what Jesus is kind of getting from this. Like Jesus is like, he's on the road to Calvary. They have the world's sins placed upon him. And people are saying, oh yeah, I'll follow you. I'll follow you. Can you imagine like me doing a wedding ceremony to the husband? Do you take so-and-so for, no, it's, you know, repeat after me is, you know, I'll take you for riches and poor, you know, being rich and poor, all sickness and in health, good times, bad times, I'll forsake all others. The husband says that. And then the wife looks at him and says, well, I've modified my vows. Sometimes the wives will say, I've modified my vows. Is it okay if I just read my own vow? Oh, sure, sure, sure. No problem. She looks at him and says, I'm going to take you for good times only. <laughs> riches only. And I'm not forsaking all others. Can you imagine how, like, like if that was really like your son and his bride, like, whoa, what's, what if I told you that there was a prophet in the Old Testament that God did this very thing to? If you can find Hosea in the Old Testament, go there. Every Bible has like a table of contents. I'm going to go there. You don't have to go there, but I want to read this to you. In Hosea chapter three, there's a, there's a prophet. God had spoken to him. This stuff in the Bible, like I, you know, like there's some like very interesting stories. I don't know why anybody doesn't preach through Hosea. Somebody suggested in the first service I should preach through this one next. So here's Hosea in chapter three, verse one, kind of explaining the situation to the readers. He says, then the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. Then I said to her, you shall stay with me for many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So I will also be towards you. Put this in regular English. The NSAB reads a little bit difficult here. This is the deal. God says, Jose, you're one of my prophets. I need you to be my representative again. The people of Israel have wandered, and I need you to make an illustration to show them what they're doing to my heart. You might want to sit down for what I ask you to do. But what I want you to do is I want you to go out, and I want you to buy a prostitute. But pay a lot of money because you've got to marry her. Go marry her, and she's going to have all kind of infidelity on you. But stay with her. Love her. Invest in her. She's going to keep cheating on you, but love her. And I want to do this to show the people of Israel their actions toward me. So it's like, so I got 15 shekels of silver and a something, you know, barley and a half, you know, whatever that is, a homer and a half of barley. And I went down and I bought myself a prostitute and I said, I'm marrying you and we're staying together. And then the story kind of unfolds. Everything happens. This man stays faithful, keeps loving her, keeps buying her back. And at the very end of the book, in Hosea chapter 14, verse 1, the sort of the concluding point that Hosea says to the people, he says, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously that we may present the fruit of our lips. Verse 9, whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right and the righteous will walk in them. But transgressors will stumble in them. And going back to Luke chapter 9, this very difficult section of Jesus. Jesus is about to being God Give all. And people are coming to him cheaply saying, oh, I'll follow after you. But they don't really mean it. And they're not really, they kind of want that, that rabbit's foot. Well, I, can I, do you have like a prorated plan, like enough to keep me out of hell, but like to where I can live my life however I want? I mean, it sounds kind of rash, but that's the reality of what we're dealing with here. And Jesus challenges them. Make sure I'm kind of checking in on my notes again. Because we're, we're to the part where, like, I've learned three lessons from these three lives. 
So in these three lives, you have the first guy that says, I'll follow you, Lord, wherever you go. But it turns out he might not have a whole lot of comfort in this life if he falls, follows after Jesus. And I come to ask you the question, have you come to trust in Christ? I, I realize like, this, is, this is pretty much my number one closing point every single week. Have you trusted in Jesus? But what I never do here, and see, I'm kind of, we're like, I mean, we are, this is a Baptist church. I really don't like, I really wish there was, like, it's just, but I don't think a name means anything. Like, I really don't, so. But the problem with, like, having Baptist, and then we're like Southern Baptists, like, we're like the real deal, you know, like, this is really, very few people have I've been comforted by that. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm not, I'm not, like, we are. But they have a reputation of, like, every, every week, now, we're going to walk the aisle, and I want you to have a big emotional response. And I want everybody to see. And I want you to come down and give your life to the Lord. And there's, I mean, there really isn't anything wrong with that. I, it's just, first, it's not my style. But why I'm kind of against it is, is I would rather, no, sit. Sit, listen to the scriptures. Take months. Learn. Get to know Jesus. Study. Count the cost. And in the privacy of your heart at night or down the mountain or wherever you like, like at that, then you say, I, Lord, yes. And baptism is the time for you to kind of say, come forward and to stand in front of everybody and say, no, I've decided to follow Jesus. But we encourage people like the Like, I don't believe in the whole blind faith. Yes, there's faith that's required, but God has left so much evidence to us. That's why we give away the free case for Christ. We want you as a church to get the facts, study, to weigh the cost. And if you turn a few chapters to Luke chapter 14, see, Luke is going to just keep turning the screws on us. Like, I'm going to get no, like, vacation from God, like, dialing me in because I need it. And in Luke chapter 14, verse 25, there's a big group of people surrounding Jesus. And we read, now large crowds were going along with him. And he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Now, Jesus isn't saying you're supposed to hate your wife. You're supposed to hate your mom and dad. You're supposed to hate your kids. You're supposed to hate your life. What he's saying is, is that he is number one. He is all. And these things are secondary. And we hold our hands open. And I'm challenged every time. Like, I see the thing is, is this point drives me crazy, and I see it every time. Every trip to Mexico. Like, I'm the one who sets the calendar. Like, I put dates on the calendar that, hey, we're going to go to Mexico and build a house or go to Gabriel House or do whatever. There's one coming up in November. And I guarantee you in October, I'm going to be tossing and turning in my bed going, why in the world did I do that? There's people being killed in Mexico. There are drug dealers. There's all this stuff. Why am I bringing my kids to Mexico? What am I? Like, this is in my head. Like, why am I doing this? And Lord saying, am I Lord of all or you trust me? Like, I didn't guarantee that you'd have a comfortable life. I want you to go. He doesn't count the cost. Yeah, I love my kids. And I realize, Lord, they're your kids. Like, you're, they're yours. My wife is yours. And he goes on to say, whoever does not carry his own cross. See, the cross wasn't a piece of jewelry. This was like a point to execute you, to kill people brutally. And come after me. He cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation, he is not able to finish. And all who observe ridicule him, saying this man began to build and was not able to finish. Like, seriously, like if you want to do an addition to your house, if you want to add a room, you go get a bunch of contractors. And what do they do? They give you a bid. It's going to cost you $35,000 or to do this. Can you pay me? I'm going to need half up front. We'll finish the rest and you can pay us the second half. Sure, we can do it. $30,000? I have, I'm thinking, I, I have $15,000. I'm good to go. We're going to do a guest home, 8,000 square feet. Contractor does all, you know, all of the work. He's like, okay, I'm going to need a little bit more money. I'm out. I'm done. I didn't realize it was going to cost that much. You were really serious about that bid? Like, I thought, I, I thought we could, can you finish it? No, it doesn't work like that. All his neighbors sees this big pad in his backyard. What happened? Well, turns out it really was going to be $30,000, and all I had was $10,000, so I'm kind of stuck. This friend's like, you fool. What were you thinking? And then Jesus gives another illustration. He says in verse 
30. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to, in, to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his possessions. This kind of moves into the second guy, the wealth, the, the inheritance. See, I used to not like this verse because I thought it meant if you're a Christian, you've got to take a vow of poverty. And that's kind of like, Jesus, if Jesus said, take a vow of poverty, I'm trying to be transparent. Like, I kind of would like, you know, I like making sure I have meals, that I'm comfortable, like, that I like to have, like, savings there. I would struggle. But then when I read this in context and I look at this whole thing, I'm not necessarily removing that option. But the premise, what I see, this, this idea of battle, two kings sending a delegation, how much is it going to cost? One surrenders to the other. Like us coming down to Jesus and saying, no, my sin separates me from you. I want to have peace with God. I accept your gift, but everything I have is yours. This week, you might have had a 401k, a 201k, a 301k. Like, it's all over the place. Like, if you were in the stock market, this is a week to test. Where's your love? And we come before Jesus, and whether you have 33 cents in the bank or you have $33 million in the bank, when we come to him as Lord, we say, Lord, it's all yours. You're Lord. And God's not against people having money. He's against when money becomes your God. And that's the second guy. The final guy, this whole coming after Jesus, wanting to follow him, but being so influenced by relationships that you're not willing to totally commit to doing what God wants you to do. That there's hesitation there. There there are people in your life that hold you back. Or you're wanting to please people in your life instead of wanting to please God. I want us to kind of go over to Philippians chapter 3. And I look to this man who I think is a great illustration of a man that came to Jesus and Jesus had come. It's Apostle Paul. And in Philippians chapter 3, during the first service, I was tempted. Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. My temptation right now is just to kind of go through Philippians chapter 3 and 4, but we can't do that. It's, we're softball and, you know, lunch. But in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, Paul is sitting under house arrest. It wasn't like the hardcore prison where, he's, where he would find himself in 2 Timothy, but this is, he's got to stay there. He's got to pay for the security to watch him. He, if he wants food, he's got to pay for it himself. So people are bringing him gifts, helping him stay under arrest. And in verse 7, he says, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I counted gain for the loss of Christ. Now, what is he talking about? We have to back up to verse 4 to learn a little about Paul. He says, Although I myself might have confidence in the flesh. See, what was happening is people were coming into the church and they were telling the church that you had to be religious. You had to do certain things to earn favor with God. And Paul says, If anyone has mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. I don't know anybody that can look in my face and say, you know what? I think from the depths of my heart, I could look God right in the eye and say, according to the whole Bible, all of the commentators and the way you live life, I've never sinned against God. Paul, in seriousness, says I could. I was blameless. I never failed the law. And when he encountered Christ on the road to Damascus, he saw how holy God was. And he suddenly came to understand how sinful he was. And now verse 7, he says, But whatever things were gained to me, the, those things I have counted a loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in the view of surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For whom I have suffered loss of all things and counted them but rubbish. The English really tones this down. We're in a valley center. It's dumb. Manure. Bad stuff. 
All of those things before, all of my religiousness, all of the things that I was puffed up about, those are manure. All I want now is so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Like, I don't see any of these good little Christian books at the Christian bookstore that, that are like, here's a little Devo book on how to suffer with Christ. Like all of the promises on suffering that's found in the scriptures about how miserable your life is going to be. They're guaranteed. Persecution's going to come. We're to rejoice in it. Paul's sitting under arrest and he says, I long to fellowship. I think fellowship, I think spicy hot dogs and tri-tip and a great barbecue. He's talking about the suffering, but it gets worse. Being conformed to his death. In order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. And see now, if you don't have that zeal, here's where the hope comes in. Verse 12, I love this part. Not that I have already attained it or have already become perfect, but I press on. He said, I keep my hands on the whatchamacallit thing that makes the rose in the ground that you plant seeds on. What do you, I, the plow, that thing, yeah. I press on. That I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ. Brethren, I don't regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of Christ, uh, goal for the prize and the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Chapter 4 is going to continue and come to that famous verse. It almost like I can even quote it. For I can do all things. Through Christ who strengthens me. How many of us have seen that boxer with that Philippians 4.13 on the back of his robe? He takes off his robe. Guy hits him. Glass jaw. The guy's laid out. It's like, wait a minute. I thought you could do all things through Christ who strengthens you. How in the world? Like, what happened? See, we use that verse out of context. If we start in Philippians chapter 4, verse 10, he says, But I rejoice in the Lord greatly. That now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked the opportunity. This just cracks me up. I hate getting help from people. I hate not being self-sufficient. And those times when you're knocked down and people start coming around you and loving on you are so humbling. Like they're humbling in like a good way. And Paul's like in that place and he says, you know what? I rejoice that my life is really miserable right now because I knew you always loved me. But now my being knocked down gave you the opportunity to show me how much you love me. And he goes on to say, not that I asked, not that I speak from want. I have the next phrase circled and highlighted for I've learned like it's a process to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. That means, you know that song? When I was a kid, we grew up, oh, I ain't got a barrel of money, but we're traveling along singing. You know that song? Was I the only one as a kid that sang that song? Okay. Humble means. He's content. He only has nothing. And I also know how to live in prosperity. Paul had all kind of money at times. Wealth came from a prestigious family. He didn't say that Jesus said having prosperity is bad. It's a condition of your heart and view of having your money. And in every circumstance, I've learned the secret. Oprah has her book, The Secret. Don't read it. I mean, you can read it, but it's garbage. She doesn't know the secret, but Paul does. The secret of being filled and going hungry. So having food, not having food. Both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. If I was to translate this from the Greek, I would change this to I can endure all things in Christ who strengthens me. And this is what Jesus is saying to these three guys. You know, I've been in Valley Center and I've noticing like a very scary change has been happening to me. I am. Um, <laughs> it's exactly this point. <laughs> I um, I I used to just can't couldn't stand country music, like, like 
like I said, tear in my beer because my girlfriend broke up with me or I got me a new girlfriend or like, oh, like there's just songs. Yeah. And it's like they're depressing. But the longer I'm here, like the more I'm like kind of like, yeah, like and, and so Joanne last week, she like sent us with this stack of I know this stack of this stack of CDs of country music. Because when we go visit Grandpa Hilton, as soon as we cross into Kalinga, or not Kalinga, um, a Button Willow, we make that turn on the 58 into nothingness. It's like you just feel like you got to listen to country. And, and so Anna's like texting Joanne along the way. And I look at Anna, I'm like, I think there's a song about I've gone country. And she texts Joanne, and I guess it's she's gone country. So I can't really make it work for me because I'm not a she. All this to say, one of the things that she gave us, this was a very long tangent, which I do sometimes. She, this CD was a Randy Travis, like, gospel CD. And we got to song number six. And it's, what's the name of this? I'm looking to, you're, you're worthy of my you are worthy of my praise. And we're driving down the road, and we just, like, we start, like, singing this song. And I'm like, oh, man. Like this song, then it stuck in my head all week. And I've been, you know, like yesterday, if you could have seen me coming back from Temecula, like I'm going down cold grade, rocking out to Randy Travis's song, cycling through over and over again. Halfway tears in my eyes, halfway wanting to raise my hands because I'm in privacy. and But I got to steer the stinking car. And the words of this song are powerful considering these two guys that say, I'll follow you. And Jesus says, turn back. You won't really follow me. And we're closing with this song, and I'm halfway is a warning. Like if you're, like there's some serious, see when we sing songs, it's not to like just tap our feet and to feel good sort of thing. These are like songs that we're singing to God. And we so just sing songs that we don't mean, and I think that's dangerous. And I halfway want to warn you, don't sing this song if you don't mean it. And I'm going to have, we're going to look at the words up here. I'm going to resist singing again. So it says, I starts out, I will praise you with all of my strength. Next little clicker. I will seek you all of my days. Next one. I will follow all of your ways. See, these are pretty bold statements to God. Like if we stop and think about what we're, like we're saying, I will follow you with all of my strength. I will worship with all of my heart. Like I was like, I got, I got an IRA. I have some money in the stock market. And this, like my heart was in some turmoil this week, being terribly convicted about this. Am I following wealth or am I following the stock market? I will bow down and hail you as king. Next song. I, or I will serve you, give you everything. Like, Lord, I'm yours. I'm not, like everything. I will lift up. My eyes to your throne. Next thing. I will trust in you. Trust in you alone. Is there more? It's hard reading songs. Still get laughed about when I... Never mind. No, go there. But we're going to end with this song. We're over now. and, And I... What I hope... Is that we can sing that song and mean it. Because if you sing that song and you just like the melody of it... You might be casting judgment on yourself or making a deal with God that you're not like uphold. Like this is, you're not singing to try to impress me or Rick. Like if you have it, like everybody impresses me musically because I am at the very bottom of the rung. But we're singing to God. And these words aren't just words. We're saying, I will trust you. I will follow you alone with all of my strength. Everything I have, I'm in God. And I'm not holding back. And so I warn you with this last song that we're going to sing. And I hope that we raise the roof in this place with the words. Father, we do come before you in humility. And Lord, I confess my inadequacy that I see in myself relating to all three of these guys. Lord, I can't... I can't help but to admit that, sure, I want to be comfortable. I like having a bed to sleep in. I like having a house. I like having a car with air conditioning. I like 
these comfortable things that we have. And Lord, I thank you that you've blessed me with these things. Lord, I am blessed beyond belief. All of us are. If we are Americans living in this time and age, the poorest in our country are of the wealthiest 1% of human history. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to keep our eyes on you, the one who blesses us. That we wouldn't put our eyes on the blessing and worship the blessing, but we would worship you as the one who's blessed us. Father, I look at this guy with the dad who has died or is dying and wisdom tells us to save and, and to prepare for tomorrow. And I think that there are these principles in the scripture that you give us to, to be wise stewards. But Lord, I pray that you would help guard our hearts, Lord, from um, resisting your call, Lord, for material things, Lord, this desire to move on. And Lord, I pray um, that you would help us to align our lives totally and completely, Lord, around this idea of pleasing you. Not being, a worry, not being worried about what other people think of us. Lord, I know that there are probably people here who maybe um, haven't trusted in you or, you know, kind of, this might be a good shot. And so, Lord, it's always hard. I know I've just been so convicted this week over this text. And Father, we thank you that you're a God that loves us, that you're a God of forgiveness, that you convict us, Lord, um, to move us into further commitment with you. And Lord, if there are people here who haven't trusted in you, Lord, I pray that you would, Lord, if they're seeking, Lord, that you would um, guide them to the truth, that you would help assure them, Lord, of whatever is lacking in their ability to come to you in faith. We thank you, Lord, that Jesus paid it all and and receiving salvation as simple as believing. Lord, you are good. And as we sing this song, Lord, I pray that you would help us to evaluate these words, that they wouldn't be empty words, that we would sing them and mean them. And Lord, that you would just give us the strength to follow after you. We thank you, Lord, that you're so gracious and you use us in spite of us being us. You are good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.